Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio and every U.S. military base in the world, on your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Um, to step just a little bit out of the frame of politics for a moment, I want to talk to you about daylight savings time. Spring is coming. In another month or so, we're all going to get an hour of jet lag whack. People will die. Daylight savings time every year does cause some people to die. You see a spike in heart attack rates. You see a spike in car accidents. The loss of productivity in the first week or two after daylight savings time comes into effect in the spring. Should we do away with the change twice a year to and from daylight savings time. Should we do away with that? The states are starting to pick, and this was a ballot initiative in California. I think it was also in Florida. Nearly 60% of California voters in November of last year said, let's just keep the state on daylight savings time all year round. Now, that's really great for people who are night owls, but for morning people, morning people would prefer that the country be on standard time all year round because basically what daylight savings time does is it takes an hour out of the morning and shifts it to the evening during the summer months. And people like me who have to get out, you know, I get up at, you know, between four and five in the morning to put this show together and come in here and do this show because we go on the air at nine o'clock Pacific time. Do we go to standard time nationwide or do we go with daylight savings time permanently? which is going to make for darker mornings, but, but later evenings. And uh, California's Proposition 7 is the one that passed in California. But now, it, you know, the, and the people said, yes, let's just daylight savings time all year. I would be, yes, standard time all year. One of the interesting things that we now know about this is that there's actually a biology, a genetic biology associated with being a morning person or an evening person. Which makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, you know, if you're looking at the evolutionary patterns necessary for the survival of a species, particularly a top predator like us, who are subject to other predators and subject to predators of our own species, it makes perfect sense that you would want to have somebody awake pretty much 24-7, you know, when we were living as tribes and clans and family units in forests and fields and jungles, that it would have been a good thing for there always to be somebody up, to always have a, a watch person, right? So you would have some people who work better in the evening and some people who work better in the morning. It also explains why we all think that we're supposed to sleep eight hours a night. But actually, when you put people in dark rooms for more than a couple of weeks so that their natural body rhythms start coming out, 
and there's some fascinating research done on this in France back in the 70s and 80s. What they found was that typically what people do is they sleep for a little while. Some people it's one hour, some people it's five hours. And then they're awake for an hour to two hours, and then they sleep for a few more hours. That's what's normal. And in fact, prior to electric lights and prior to artificial lighting with whale oil and things like the electric lights came along in the 1900s, the artificial lights, whale oil and things like that came along in the 14-1500s. Prior to that, people routinely got up in the middle of the night. They ate meals. There were recipe books. They called it evening break. What kind of meals are appropriate for your the middle of the night snack? People had sex. People got together sometimes. Neighbors would get together in the middle of the night. There were books that were specifically recommended to be read in the middle of the night. And again, if you look at this evolutionarily, it makes perfect sense that if I wake up for my hour in the middle of the night at, at say, midnight, and my neighbor wakes up for 2 a.m., and my other neighbor wakes up for her middle of the night hour at 4 a.m., then between the three of us, there's always somebody awake all night long keeping an eye out for the tiger coming through the bush uh, that might take us out, right? I mean, evolutionarily, this makes perfect sense. And the extension of that, of course, is that some people are better in the morning and some people are better in the evening. So... I don't know if there's a political breakdown to this. I'd be very surprised if it's a tied to the same genes that seem to define authoritarian personalities. And, and that, you know, there's, there's not clear genetic data on that. But there is on this, on sleep. And daylight savings have a relatively recent thing. Everybody blames it on Ben Franklin. But it was actually World War I when we started doing this to save electricity. And it became a national standard only in the 1960s. And now that we've been doing it for 50 years, we're looking back, you know, and seeing that, yeah, it slightly reduces lighting use, but it increases the need for heat and air conditioning. And so energy-wise, it's just a wash. But it causes heart attacks, workplace injuries, car accidents, all kinds of things. So which direction do you think that should go? Manuel in Houston. Hey, Manuel. Yeah, good morning, Tom. Listen to you every day. Love your show. Thanks. Anyway, this comment about I'm for a standard time because uh, raising children, you're trying to get them to bed by 8 o'clock, and they say, but it's still light outside. Uh, <laughs> you're arguing the morning person argument here on, on behalf exactly. of child rearing. I get it. And, and having, I just thought I'd joke about that. No, I, I, hey, you know, Louise and I raised three kids. I know exactly, and I was one myself. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Manuel, thank yeah, you no, very much. Thank okay, you so there you go. Program. Great. Thank you, and thanks for watching us down there in Houston, Texas on Free Speech TV. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul. Tom, I think what we should do is fall back six times a year. Every two months, we get an extra hour of sleep, and then after four years, We'd have accrued 24 hours, and we could get rid of leap year. <laughs> okay. Just saying, I mean, it would be weird. You've been working on that for a while, haven't you, Paul? We'd all be working in the dark. <laughs> night would be right. day, and day would be night, if you know what I mean. Right, right. But it would come back, and we'd all get more sleep. Okay. All right. Well, you know, some great tongue-in-cheek suggestions here, too. Paul, thank you. Charlene in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Charlene. Hey, Tom, Arizona tried daylight savings time and found that with the longer afternoons and evenings, and, with, and that's when the higher temperatures would occur, we would just cook. So we do not participate in daylight savings time. Oh, is that long. why? I couldn't figure out why does Arizona not do this? It's because by doing that, you have higher air conditioning costs in the summer. Is that is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. You know, wow. when it's, one, it's the highest temperature. 
the highest temperature occurs around 4, 4.30 every afternoon. Right. So, you know, when you're running 110, 115, um, you know, that, that would impact, impact us greatly. So we don't do it. I, and I'm so happy we don't do it. Do you know if Arizona did it for a while and then backed away? Because it seems they like... They did it for a while. I don't know. I don't know what date was, the year was. They tried right. it and they, they found it was disastrous with the temperatures. And they went back to doing... At Mountain Standard Time all year long. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. It's think... crazy because in summer we're actually on Pacific Time, but we stay where we are and they jump ahead. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Arizona and Hawaii are the two states that have opted not to do daylight savings time. And Hawaii doesn't because they're basically on the equator, so they've got a 12 hour day and night year round. It doesn't matter to them. Interesting stuff. Charlene, thank you. Sean was just saying, if we're going to do daylight savings time, why don't, why don't we make the change Friday night instead of Sunday night? I mean, you know, give us the whole weekend or Saturday night. Give us a day or two to recover before we have to go to work and deal with morning traffic and all this. This is crazy stuff. Wes in Oak Park, Illinois, listening to WCPT. Hey, Wes, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to say I think you and perhaps all the other callers are overlooking what I think is probably the greatest benefit of keeping daylight savings time. And that is just basic human fundamental satisfaction and marital harmony. That night in the spring, when we put those clocks forward, that's the one night each year I get to make love to my wife for an hour and four minutes. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. (laughs) For an hour and four minutes. Thank you, Wes. That was a good one. Mary in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hi, I'm really, really glad that you're bringing this up. Because I just found out that we are also having this put on our ballots. Yes, it's going to be on, on the ballots in uh, both Oregon and Washington State this fall, or maybe next you know next year. California just voted on it a few months ago. And, and also, Daylight Savings Time is coming in, what, three weeks? I think it's March 10th or 11th, something like that. So, I don't know. It's disgusting because yeah. I'm a, a psych nurse practitioner and have been looking at this idea of how it affects sleep and the things that you brought up earlier, that it's dangerous that this thing, um, it is jet lag, it causes a lot of car accidents and a lot of other things aside from heart attacks or whatever. And I'm also a morning person. So that the thing is, in Washington, it really doesn't matter since as a, a person who had to work nights, and when I was working in the hospital, you know, we'd get light here in the summertime at 4 o'clock in the morning and stay light till 10. So yeah. it really, all of that didn't matter a lot. But I agree. I think it's a, a bad idea. The other thing is I worked with kids, and I, my thought was the reason that adolescents go to sleep later is because I figured that in the olden times, they were the ones that stayed up all night and stayed up late to protect us from the... From the predators. You know, Yes, yep. exactly. Yeah, so that's I, what I would tell my families. I say, well, this is normal. Oh, this I think it's. I think it's happening. absolutely true. The biology of this is absolutely irrefutable. And now that they've identified genes associated with that biology, we know that this is nature, not nurture. There are some people who their normal body rhythm is to wake up an hour or two after daylight, and other people whose normal rhythm is to go to sleep an hour before sunset. I mean, you know, we're all wired slightly differently in that regard. And as I said earlier, I think that that's one of the keys to our evolutionary survival. Mary, thank you. Thank you for your contribution to our conversation, John, and more. Morris, Illinois. Hey, John. How you doing, Tom? Just leave it alone. You know, God set the times. 
Well, he except that God didn't create time. Well, time is a man-made invention. It's an artificial thing. He, he didn't do the numbers, but if you read Daniel 7, 25, it'll tell you exactly. They changed times. There, how much time do you waste changing all the clocks in your house? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Although, they're, you know, waste the time. increasingly they're, they're connected to the Internet, and so they do it automatically. But so your suggestion. So, John, you're saying don't change to and from daylight savings time every year. I get that. I think probably most people agree with that. Then the question becomes, do we stay on daylight savings time year round or do we stay on standard time year round? Uh, standard time. I work swing shifts. You modify the swing shifts at the time when you work. Everything else can modify. Just leave the way it was planned from the very beginning. Okay. All right. Well, at least from the 17th century. Yes. Okay. John, thank you. Sean in Stamford, Connecticut. Hey, Sean, what's up? Just move the clocks a half hour in between and just leave it. That way you get a little bit of both. And you get a little bit of balance, so you don't have to worry about one extreme or the other. Sean, you should be in con- in Congress. You you <laughs> your instinct is to compromise. That's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. No, so, but like it's like you know, living here in the Northeast, and it was you know the sun sets in New York around eight thirty in the summertime. Hmm. Well, if it's eight o'clock at night, no one's going to worry about half an hour. But in the wintertime, you have sunrise about seven twenty in January, and if you Okay, it's 7.50, but school is at the start, so you don't lose too much. Mm. You have a healthy balance. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're getting someplace here. Sean, thank you. Monica in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hey, Monica, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? All my life, I've been wondering the very same thing. Why do we have that? And also, it occurred to me, why are we such slaves to the clock? Why don't we simply say, now, you know, use the clock uh, as a guide, but say, okay, the sun rises at this time in the winter, so we'll go to school at nine o'clock in the winter. Uh, you know, certain months, uh, you know, then it goes to eight o'clock and then seven o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, Monica, that's actually how it was prior to roughly the 16th century. Um, If you go back and you look at the history of clocks and, uh, you know, clock making, particularly for like the top of giant church towers and things, got really sophisticated in the late 1500s, the early 1600s. And and a certain amount of industrialization was happening during that period as well in Europe. And so what happened was prior to that, businesses would open right after the sun came up and they would close right before the sun went down year round. And so people would get up when the sun came up and they'd go to work. And then they, you know, when the sun started going down, they'd go home and they'd have dinner and they, you know, that would be the end of that. And, uh, but with the, uh, or they would work for a certain number of hours and then go home. But with the advent of the technology of well-built clocks, they started putting clocks on towers. When I lived in Stadtsteinach in Germany, this little town of 16,000 people out in the middle of nowhere, Every hour, actually every quarter hour, the clock would chime. Every hour it does a big fancy chime and every quarter hour it just does a bong. That was to basically regulate work. And so, yeah, I think your idea is a good one. And also, as far as work goes, we should pretty much do the same in certain businesses. Mm -hmm. There are certain businesses that I think that you should use the sun what if we all did that? What if every business just kind of opened at sunlight and... Industrialists wouldn't go for that in the wintertime because you don't have enough sun, and so they wouldn't get enough profit. 
at least in the north. Yeah. But people would have a better quality of life. Oh, well. Yeah, I mean, as long as the industrialists get a good quality of life, hey. Yeah, I remember so vividly. Uh, Louise and I, in 1997, sold an ad agency that we had built in Atlanta and retired to Vermont. Bought a house way out in the woods, and I was just going to write books. And for about two years, we would get up with the sun, we'd go to bed with the sun. Uh, you know, I would write during the day, but uh, it's when I wrote the last hours of ancient sunlight and the prophet's way, but we completely lived with the seasons. And it was so gentle, it was so comfortable, it was so nice. And, and then, also we could do away with a lot of this light pollution that we have. Yeah, 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 there's a lot of possibilities here. How far down this rabbit hole of industrialization and synchronization and, you know, uh, I, it may be irretrievable, but Monica, you're spot on. Thank you very much for the call. What if we were to just kind of make this transition to the way things were before roughly the 1600s in this world, or at least in Europe? Prior to the 1600s, basically businesses opened in the morning when the sun came up and they closed at night when the sun went down. And we all used the sun as what defined our times. Paul in Quilcene, Washington. Am I saying that right, Paul? Quilcene. Thank you for listening. Yeah, th cool. Thanks for listening to KSER. What's up? Uh well, you, you punched my nonpartisan button on this one. Okay. And this is uh, this messing with the clock. Let's go back to Greenwich, England. Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah, okay. That's the standard and, for the world, runs through London, yeah. Right. It runs and through Greenwich. So the Earth turns at a set rate. Every so many degrees is an hour. Right. They're trying to get out of the standard that the world has established. It is a set thing of physics, how fast the Earth turns and where the sun is. If a business wants to open earlier, hey, put your sign up, as she said. Winter hours, other hours, whatever, however you want to do it. It's a democratic way to live. But so you're saying blow up daylight savings time? Yeah, dispense with it. Okay, so, so here's the question, manner. Paul. We know that if we went year-round daylight savings time, which is what California just voted for, we'd have more time in the evening to, to play or to, you know, the kids in the backyard or whatever it may be. You'd have less time in the morning. If we went all standard time, you'd have earlier mornings and, and earlier evenings. Which would you prefer? What you just said is not true. Okay. What am I, what am I missing? Turns, the earth turns at a set rate. You don't get any more hours by changing the clock than what the sun gives us by the rate we turn. Oh, you're right. And so it's a matter of how you look at it, not what's physically happening. Right. If you want, more, you know, you're not going to get more hours. Okay, and let me let me rephrase that then, Paul. If if we yes, were too. to if we were to stay with daylight savings time, kids would be going to school and people would be going to work in the dark in the morning, and the, after they come home, they would have more hours of daylight. Whereas if we went with all standard time, people would be going to school and going to work in the morning more in the, in the daylight during the year than if we went with daylight savings time. Not if only if you choose to. That's a different thing. Yeah. But basically, I guess the question, I'm assuming that partisanship on this essentially, uh, and I don't mean in the traditional sense, is going to break down along the lines of morning person versus evening person. If you're a morning person, you're going to say, I want standard time year-round. If you're an evening person, you're going to say, I want daylight savings time year-round. I say you should go with the time that suits you. But it messes with all manner of navigation and entrance and exits of ports for people and for goods. 
And it makes it, in fact, this part of the trouble we have when different states have it and don't have it as far as daylight savings. Right. Hawaii doesn't have it right now. Half of Arizona doesn't have it. Enough said on that. And I'll let somebody else speak. I have one thing for you. This, this is a bumper sticker. Okay. And it's something I would wish both for you and for Mr. Trump. May you receive in abundance all that you wish for others. Ha! Okay. Thank you, Paul. Brilliant. Brilliant. You're listening to Tom Hartman. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address, in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large, snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. 
In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserved technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he'd run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity and our worth? Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. Often the time that appears on a nation's iconic clock, Big Ben in the United Kingdom, for example, or those daunting dials on the Spassky Tower in Russia's case, is a subtle way of representing where power lies. In Russia, every time zone is first referred to in relation to MSK, Moscow Standard Time, with UTC only following. Moreover, many countries don't even adhere to the 24-hour GMT UTC's neat meridians. China's huge landmass should straddle five different time zones, yet operates according to just one. Inhabitants of western China, if they follow their clocks, have dark mornings and light evenings, but nobody doubts that only the Beijing time matters. When Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela in 1999, he created a new time zone that would set Venezuela 30 minutes apart from neighboring countries. That was his way of letting the world know that Venezuela was striking out on its own. But Putin's idea of showcasing his country's temporal and geographic diversity in just one night was certainly unique, and it accorded with his plans to return Russia to its lost great power status. It also sprung from what Putin knew Russians expect of their leader, something close to godlike status. Keen on creating a leader's image steeped in tradition, history, and mythology often associated with the uniqueness of the Russian soul, spiritual endurance, persevering patience, belief in miracles, and material sacrifice. He wanted to be seen as the dead morose, the granddad Frost, the Russian Santa Claus, bearing gifts of renewed national importance and self-confidence. Capitalizing on Russia's size, 6,000 miles from east to west, Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. Wayne in Charleston, New Hampshire. You want to vote on this? Yeah, yeah, Tom. I listen to the show all the time, and I, I love it. Hey, anyway, no, I've worked night shifts and day shifts, and I guess I'm a morning person. I, I'll vote for standard time because when I had to work the night shifts, I was constantly tired yeah. all the time. Yep, been there, done that, and and uh, you know about it. Yeah, no, and I and and trying to trying to even think at night is difficult for me. I mean, as a writer, right? I, you know, I can. And then you got to get up. You know, you go to you come home at midnight. See, so in bed by let's say you know you clean up and everything. You're in bed by two. 
Then you're up at 9, and then you're looking forward to getting ready to go to work by 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You're constantly tired. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Wayne, thank you for the call. Rich in Indiana. Hey, Rich. Uh, didn't Indiana go on and off daylight savings time at one point? What I remember is that they were talking about the little kids at the bus stop early in the morning in the dark getting hit by cars. And so they, uh, uh, so they quit the daylight savings time, or they started it. I don't remember which it was, but I remember there was a. All I remember is that they TV. were they were trying to keep kids uh, out of the paths, kids as um, uh, road users, right? Um, you know, road users in harm's way, right? So it was a safety uh, from thing from getting hit by cars because because people drive so crazy around here. I mean, I mean, I thought I knew crazy. You know, I've I've, I've visited uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, and they got nothing on on Hoosiers. Hoosiers are nuts. Really? Anyway, oh. anyway. Oh God. Okay. Anyway, anyway. Uh, all I can do is truth tell about how bad it is here in Indiana. All right. The reason that I give you a call, please, is that I wanted to uh, bring the topic of, and and it got to the previous caller saying the the fatigue thing, the quality of light. Um, there's a documentary called Stare Into the Lights, My Pretties, by Jordan Brown, and it's about screen culture, and there is this whole aspect of the illumination of a little screen of a electronic device uh, being on the Internet uh, that, you know, is a certain frequency, and it has this biochemical effect, which ain't so good, and then think about the fight to illuminate the darkness with electric light has moved through the centuries. Yep. First bulb, 1879, I think, Edison. The idea that the industrialists want to spread work so that a factory never shuts down, mm. and, and now they're saying that we can, we can own things in a gig economy and a sharing economy so that we can always be using things all the time. Everything is just in time, and all of this is about maximizing profit by those who are the capitalists, those who own the capital. Oh, absolutely, so, and, and you can dude, take this back to, the, back to the 16th century, the 17th century. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Rich, I'm sorry we're out of time, but uh, spot on. Quite a conversation. More than I expected. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program anytime you'd like. 
patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Tom Harmon here with you. On the line with us is uh, Andrew Yang. He's an entrepreneur. He's the founder of Venture for America. He's the author of a new book, The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income is Our Future. And perhaps most interesting, he is running for president on the Democratic ticket for 2020. His website, Yang, Y-A-N-G 2020.com. Andrew Yang, uh, and his Twitter handle is Andrew Yang VFA. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. I was reading your book earlier today. Uh, in fact, we read it as one of our book reports here on the program. Fascinating stuff. You've really clearly, accurately diagnosed the problem in America, at least many dimensions of it. First of all, universal basic income. Why is that a solution to many of the challenges that we're facing, the structural challenges that we're facing in the American workforce and labor force right now? And the follow-on to that will be, and then why base a presidential campaign? on that. Sure. So I spent the last seven years helping entrepreneurs create jobs and grow businesses throughout the Midwest and the South. And I realized that technology is going to blast away millions of American jobs in addition to the manufacturing jobs that have already been lost. And in my opinion, led directly to Donald Trump's election in 2016. If you look at it, we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, and Iowa, all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win. And unfortunately, we're about to do the same thing to millions of retail workers. 30% of malls are going to close in the next five years, call center workers, fast food workers, and most disastrously truck drivers. Being a trucker is the most common job in 29 states. My friends in Silicon Valley believe that we are going to be reducing these jobs and other jobs very, very quickly in the next number of years. And so a universal basic income is, to me, the most direct and effective and expedient solution that we can bring to bear that's going to help make this economy work better for millions of Americans. So let's describe that. A universal basic income means what? Well, universal basic income is a catch-all label for a policy where Every citizen or adult in a society gets a certain amount of money, free and clear, no questions asked, to pay your bills, start a business, go to school, do whatever you want. And so my plan, the Freedom Dividend, would give every American adult in the ages 18 on up $1,000 a month, free and clear. And people who are listening to this know where a lot of that money would go. It would go to car repairs, child care tutoring services, the occasional night out, home repairs you've been putting off, that money would get pumped right back into our Main Street economy, it would grow the consumer economy by about 12%, and would create several million jobs around the country. So that, to me, is a sort of dramatic solution that we need to bring to help rebalance the economy, because as you read uh, from my book, the economy has become dangerously unbalanced in favor of big corporations and capital interests. Now, you know, Milton Friedman actually recommended something like this back in the day, uh, the earned income tax credit, basically, a tax credit. This is kind of a variation on the same thing, I suppose. But the critique of the universal basic income is that it's not addressing the actual 
structural problems with America, that it's not taking on this ownership society, basically capitalism. Richard Wolff, for example, the economist would say, uh, you know, really the big challenge is having people own their own businesses, is having worker-owned co-ops, things like that. You know, direct assaults on capitalism itself. What do you think? Well, I love entrepreneurship. I love uh, cooperative businesses. I love collective ownership. And the best way we can make that happen is by putting buying power into the hands of more Americans so that people in towns and communities around the country can take cooperative ownership, more of the businesses in their communities. The tough part, though, is we don't have a time machine. We can't turn the clock back. We can't undo <laughs> like a lot of what has happened mm-hmm. over the last number of decades. And so the best way to get economic buying power into the hands of Americans directly, and this is a frustration I have with many Democrats, where I think many Democrats agree that the economy has gotten out of whack and is not serving people very well, but they still don't trust people. (laughs) They still don't want to actually put money into people's hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this grasping for solutions as they go. Maybe if we put money into education programs or, right. or retraining programs like that, that will help solve the problem. Well, and Republicans will just say, if, if you give people money, they're just going to goof off. Yeah, which the data does not show that. I mean, right. I'm a very evidence-driven guy. But people who are fans of cooperative ownership models, like, I'm a fan, too. And the best way to make that happen is through something like a universal basic income. So your presidential campaign, I, I'm guessing most of our listeners have never heard of Andrew Yang, or if they have, it's in the context of, you know, Venture for America or your book, The War on Normal People. Why run for president? Well, if you look at the magnitude of the problems uh, in front of us, where we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the country, and the third inning has brought us Donald Trump, our institutions are failing right and left, and we do not have a whole lot of time because we are decades behind in addressing these challenges. If you believe my friends in Silicon Valley that we're only five to ten years away from robot trucks hitting the highway, we do not have a lot of time to rewrite the rules of the economy. And so if you were to want to get this done in the next, let's call it, less than five years, then your range of options to make it happen are very limited. And running for president struck me as the best approach that would have a reasonable chance of succeeding. I have your newsletter here, uh, your campaign newsletter that people can get over at yang2020.com. And uh, I spent Friday in New Hampshire visiting the Fosse family in, in Goffstown, New Hampshire, the recipients of the first Freedom Dividend. I thought the Freedom Dividend was a proposal. You said that they're actually getting it. Tell me about that. And how's it working out in New Hampshire as you're campaigning for president? Sure. So uh, as an entrepreneur, you want to put your money where your mouth is. So if I think that Americans getting $1,000 a month would be good for families and, and individuals, then I should do that. So I had a call with the FEC to make sure that all was kosher, that I could give a gift to individuals and families uh, out of my own pocket and they said as long as it's your own money and they're not required to do anything then uh, have at it so uh, we identified um, potential recipients and families in new hampshire late last year and then the very beginning of this year we chose the fossey family and they're receiving a thousand dollars a month and i'm happy to say they're already feeling like it's relieved stress in their family and that um, they're positioned to make more of it this year So I've committed to do the same thing in Iowa, and you're going to love this, Tom. A family in Georgia just said that they want to fund a freedom dividend for another family in South Carolina. Hmm. Um, So Americans love this so much where they realize that $1,000 a month would make a tremendous difference in the lives of millions of Americans, and we can completely afford it. We're the richest and most 
advanced economy in the history of the world, and our economy is up to $19 trillion, up $4 trillion in the last 10 years alone. So this is eminently affordable. And uh, it's a thrill when I got that message. I mean, imagine hearing from this family in Atlanta that they want to do the same thing. Does this, though, so become the next GoFundMe? I mean, does is, is this just become like a, you know, uh, well, here's one more place that you can get a little bit of help in this economy that sucks as a consequence of 40 years of Reaganomics? Well, what I'm proposing is that we do it for every single American. Because if you look at GoFundMe, it's either heartwarming or heartbreaking, depending upon your perspective. Yep. Or you have Americans who can't pay medical bills, so they're turning to the community. I mean, that's messed up, truly. And so my plan is not for individuals, you know, just like a handful of people to get the freedom dividend. It's for if everyone. I can afford it for yeah. everyone, I can So, so the like, question, is, and, and for everybody. forgive my interrupting, but we're going to hit a break here in a minute or so. So the Republican mantra, and I'm sure a lot of Democrats, too, will be saying, okay, you know, $1,000 a month, that, you know, it's a start. Where's the money going to come from? Sure. Well, the big change we need to make is right now our income tax system is going to be very, very bad at harnessing the gains from new technologies in the hands of companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and Uber. So what we need to do is we need to join every other advanced economy and have a value-added tax. Uh, And a value-added tax would give the American public a slice of every Amazon transaction and every Google search. And because our economy is now so vast, a value-added tax at even half the European level would generate $800 billion, which, when combined with our existing spending and all the economic growth we'd experience by pumping this money into the economy and all the savings we would be experiencing on things like emergency room health care and incarceration and homelessness services, a value-added tax is a key to enable us to afford a freedom dividend for every American adult. And that's why every other developed country in the world has one, it seems. Uh, We're talking with Andrew Yang, the entrepreneur, founder of Venture for America, author of The War on Normal People. Andrew, will you keep us up to date on how your uh, campaign is going? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you just got the newsletter. But I have to say, you asked how things are going in New Hampshire. Things are going incredibly well. Uh, People understand that this economy is broken and we have to make it work for us. Uh, That's great. Yeah, we'd love to have a conversation with you uh, regularly. Great. Andrew Yang, uh, yang2020.com is the website. Andrew, thank you so much. Good luck. Thanks, Alan. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Good talking with you. And you too. Our book today is The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. This is from Chapter 2, How We Got Here, page 12. The Great Displacement didn't arrive overnight. It has been building for decades as the economy and labor markets changed in response to improving technology, financialization, changing corporate norms, and globalization. In the 1970s, when my parents worked at GE and Blue Cross Blue Shield in upstate New York, their companies provided generous pensions and expected them to stay for decades. Community banks were boring businesses that let money to local companies for a modest return. Over 20% of workers were unionized. Some economics problems existed. Growth was uneven and inflation periodically high, but income inequality was low. Jobs provided benefits, and Main Street businesses were the drivers of the economy. There were only three television networks, and in my house we watched them on a TV with an antenna that we fiddled with to make the picture clearer. That all seems awfully quaint today. Pensions disappeared for private sector employees years ago. Most community banks were gobbled up by mega banks in the 1990s. Today, five banks control 50% of the commercial banking industry, which is self-mushroomed to the point where finance enjoys about 25% of all corporate profits. Union membership fell by 50%. 94% of the jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were temp or contractor jobs without benefits. 
People working multiple gigs to make ends meet is increasingly the norm. Real wages have been flat or even declining. The chances that an American born in 1990 will earn more than their parents are down to 50%. For Americans born in 1940, the same figure was 92%. Thanks to Milton Friedman, Jack Welch, and other corporate titans, the goals of large companies began to change in the early 70s and early 1980s. The notion they espouse that a company exists only to maximize its share price became gospel in business schools and boardrooms around the country. Companies were pushed to adopt shareholder value as their sole measuring stick. Hostile takeovers, shareholder lawsuits, and later activist hedge funds served as prompts to ensure the managers were committed to profitability at all costs. On the flip side, CEOs were granted stock options for the first time that wedded their individual gain to the company's share price. The ratio of CEO to worker pay rose from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 271 to 1 in 2016. Benefits were streamlined and reduced, and the relationship between company and employee weakened to become more transactional. Simultaneously, the major banks grew and evolved as Depression-era regulations separating consumer lending and investment banking were abolished. Financial deregulation started under Ronald Reagan in 1980 and culminated in the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 under Bill Clinton that really set the banks loose. The securities industry grew 500% as a share of GDP between 1980 and the 2000s, while ordinary bank deposits shrank from 70 to 50%. Financial products multiplied as even Main Street companies were driven to pursue financial engineering to manage their affairs. GE, my dad's old company, and once a beacon of manufacturing, became the fifth biggest financial institution in the country by 2007. With improved technology and new access to global markets, American companies realized they could outsource manufacturing, information technology, and customer service to Chinese and Mexican factories and Indian programmers and call centers. U.S. companies outsourced and offshored 14 million jobs by 2013, many of which had previously been filled by domestic workers at higher wages. This resulted in lower prices, higher efficiencies, and some new opportunities, but also increased pressures on American workers who now had to compete in a global labor pool. Automation started out on farms earlier in the century with tractors and then migrated to factories in the 1970s. Manufacturing employment began to slip around 1978 as wage growth began to fall. Median wages used to go up in lockstep with productivity and GDP growth before diverging sharply in the 1970s. Since 1973, productivity has skyrocketed relative to the hourly compensation of the average wage earner. How workers are compensated and how their companies perform stopped even being aligned over the same period. Even as corporate profitability has soared to record highs, workers are earning less. The share of GDP going to wages has fallen from almost 54% in 1970 to 44% in 2013 while the share going to corporate profits went from 4% to 11%. Being a shareholder has been great for your bottom line. Being a worker, not so much. Today, inequality has surged to historic levels, with benefits flowing increasingly to the top 1% and 20% of earners due to an aggregation of capital at the top and increased winner-take-all economics. The top 1% have accrued 52% of the real income growth in America since 2009. Technology is a big part of this story as it tends to lead to a small handful of winners. Studies have shown that everyone is less happy in an unequal society, even those at the top. The wealthy experience higher levels of depression and suspicion in unequal societies. Apparently being high status is easier when you don't feel bad about it. Companies can now prosper, grow, and mint record profits without hiring 
many people or increasing wages. Both job creation and wage growth have been weaker than the top-line economic growth would suggest since the 1970s. In each of the last several decades, the economy has created lower percentages of new jobs, including no new net jobs between 2000 and 2010. Andrew Yang, The War on Normal People. When was the last time you replaced your toothbrush? Do you always brush twice a day for a full two minutes? You know, paying attention to these good habits has a huge impact on your health. Introducing Quip, it's spelled Q-U-I-P, the new electric toothbrush that helps to fix the brushing habits that most of us get wrong. Quip does this with a lightweight and sleek design, simple time vibrations, and guiding pulses to give you a perfect two-minute clean. Bulkier electric brushes have awkward charging stands, modes you don't need, and cost five times as much. Quip starts at just $25, and you can get brush head refills automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for only five bucks, and shipping's free. Quip has been featured in GQ, Oprah's O-List, and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. So go to getquip.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, right now and get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Tom. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom. Tom Harmon here with you. There's a couple of things that I wanted to just lay on the table and have a conversation with you about. And down south of us in Venezuela, there's some serious stuff going on. And the guy who used to do a lot of reporting on this is Greg Pallast, our old buddy, the investigative journalist. GregPallast.com, you can find all this stuff. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Pallast. And uh, coming in from somewhere in the bowels of Europe, Greg Pallast, welcome back to the program. Okay, well, you can see by the uh, Alps and the clock behind me that I'm in Switzerland with a new hat, so I'm kind of undercover. Uh Aha! Yes. Yes. It looks great. But the issue today really is Venezuela. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you've given me this opportunity. You know, I covered Venezuela for the BBC, for Rolling Stone, and for The Guardian. And I know the president, I know the opposition, too. And what's going on here, which is not covered by the mainstream media is a coup d'etat engineered by Donald Trump. Of course, he's not much of an engineer. The actual driver of that train is John Bolton, his neocon retread national security advisor. And basically, you've got a guy named Juan Guaido, who has literally pronounced himself president, and Donald Trump has re-pronounced him president. He made that pronouncement, by the way, right after a phone call from Donald Trump saying, if you announce yourself as president, we know this, but if you announce yourself as president, I'll recognize you as the president of a country where you've never even run for office. By the way, they're not claiming that the current government, which is a Chavista, that is uh, Hugo Chavez's chosen successor, who won the last election, very close election. No one claimed he stole it, Carter Center or others. And this guy, Juan Guaido, a nice white guy who went to George Washington University, speaks English wonderfully. Our president, Mr. Trump, has literally declared he's president and he's never run for anything. And if you really want to know what's behind this, I know that if you could put up on the screen, let me show you a couple pictures that really explain it all. There are members of Congress who back this guy, Juan Guaido, the self-proclaimed Trump-proclaimed president, and if you look at those Congress people, and the people on radio are just going to have to take our word for it. You know, you do trust Tom, and I hope you trust me. Basically, the congressional delegation that backs Juan Guaido, Trump's choice, is whiter than a 
Republican country club gathering. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the people that back Maduro, that is the people that are backing Hugo Chavez, the late Hugo Chavez's party, that's completely dark-skinned Congress people. Yeah, and this, so by the way, these are not just yeah. backers as in, you know, people who show up at a Trump rally kind of thing. This is literally the entire, all the members of Guaido's party in Congress are light-skinned, our European ancestry, and virtually all of them, and virtually all of the backers of Maduro are dark-skinned. They're either, he said he's, I guess this is the Spanish language, he said he's yeah, part they, Negro, they part Indio. Yeah, yeah, Negro Indio is a term that Hugo Chavez used for me, meaning, by the way, not just meaning his heritage, that he's mestizo from uh, black and Indian heritage, but that he looks black and he has Indian features. Right. And what we have here is basically a white supremacist coup d'etat. Now, I know that this is Trump's dream for the United States. And you know what's amazing to me, Tom, is that the liberals in America, the Democratic Party leaders in America, I was at the Macon, Georgia Trump rally. And when they see the white supremacists yelling white supremacist nasty slogans, and they see that scary white crowd that, you know, trying to make sure that black people have no in Georgia, we're trying to stop a black woman from becoming governor. They denounce that. They denounce those crowds. Yet in Venezuela, they're literally backing this minority white right. coup d'etat. Yeah. Let's you know widen the frame a little bit. I've yes. worked in Colombia. I've worked in Peru. I've worked in Mexico. I have been to Venezuela. In fact, Louise and I were there the day of the first military coup. I remember. But I've actually worked in a number of those countries. And one of the things that I noticed when I was down there was, and most of this was back in the 80s, but still, was that the power structure is very, very white. I mean, you even saw this, look at the last president of Mexico, you know, uh, Vicente Fox. He looks like he just stepped out of an ad for Spain. And the poverty, the poor people are almost always indigenous people, the ancestors of indigenous people, or indigenous people who have interbred, I guess is the word, I don't know how to say it politely, over the years with with slaves, enslaved people. And, And there's still the direct descendants of enslaved people. And so the reality is that up until Hugo Chavez was elected president in Venezuela, I don't think that there was a person who was a person of color who was ever the leader of Venezuela, was there? Right. He, he was the Obama of Venezuela after 400 years of white rule. But in this case, remember, it's a white minority rule. Right. And that was broken by Chavez and now his successor, Maduro. And the white people don't like it. Now, the truth is that Donald Trump didn't decide on Guaido because he wants to bring his, you know, Make America White Again program to Venezuela. It's something underneath those white people and under those brown people, which is the world's largest reserve of oil. That is four times the reserve of Saudi Arabia. And John Bolton, Trump's NSA chief, actually went on Fox News and said, the reason we are there Our number one concern, he actually said this on Fox News, is the oil. We've been talking to American oil companies. They are ready to take over Venezuela's oil. I kid you not, they're not even covering it up. Right, no, I I believe it's the Coke Industries that owns the refinery on the Gulf Coast that is the only refinery that's capable of refining this heavy crude that comes out of Venezuela. And that same refinery can also refine the heavy crap that comes down from Canada in the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which is why they built the pipeline to that refinery. And there was a lot of people assuming that therefore they wouldn't need Venezuela's oil anymore. Well, what was happening is that the Koch brothers were literally the captive customers. The number one customer of Venezuela was Coke Industries. Over half their oil went to Coke Industries and related companies. 
And so what happened is Venezuela was basically really charging the Koch brothers through the nose. So now, while they've been charging, the money's been collected by the American subsidiary, the Venezuelan state oil company called Citgo. You see those Citgo gas stations. Donald Trump has effectively taken over and seized Citgo and kept all the money. Because when the Kochs pay, they don't pay to Venezuela, even though it's Venezuela's oil, the people's oil. It's paid to basically the U.S. Treasury or being held by the U.S. Treasury. Paid to Citgo and, and it's US being courts. seized by the U.S. Treasury. Yeah, yeah. I get it. And, and Greg- which is pretty funny because, you know, we keep talking about, you know, this terrible socialist who seized the oil company. Well, that's just what Trump has done. There you go. The reality down in uh, Venezuela right now is that they've got something like 100,000% inflation. It's just devastating everybody. And it appears, I've read a couple of pieces about this in the financial media, particularly the Financial Times, that the main thing, I mean, typically these kinds of hyperinflation happen when a vital or critical commodity is not available. And so that price explodes and it drags everything else with it. We saw this in a small way in the United States after the Arab oil embargo. And apparently that vital commodity is U.S. dollars, that Venezuela had borrowed U.S. dollars in things denominated in U.S. dollars very heavily, and now they can't pay that back. And that's what's killing their currency. To what extent is that the fault of the Chavez and Maduro government? To what extent do they own the dysfunction of their own economy? I would say, I know Maduro, the president, I think he's over his head, no question. And I think he didn't realize what the United States could do to him, because here's what's happening. The entire economy of Venezuela is based on selling oil to the United States. That's the entire economy of Venezuela, okay, with some oil to China and Russia. Right, and Cuba. Uh, but, okay, so now the United States is literally withholding all the money that's owed for that oil. Plus, there's an embargo it's an act of war. In fact, the United Nations repertoire has said this siege is like a medieval siege. It's an act of war. And the U.N., U.N. repertoires who, who was sent there said this is causing starvation. There's no medicine because we are embargoing. Yeah, 10 percent of the population has fled the country. Yeah, and because they can't eat. Right. They have to get out. If you want to eat, if you want to survive, you you got to go. And now you got Marco Rubio and Donald Trump with this uh, aid caravan via Colombia that's on their border that Maduro won't let into the country, which is, I think, shooting him. I think he politically is shooting himself in the foot here. Well, there's no question. I mean, they showed up with some food with American flags on it for 5,000 families for three weeks. Okay, there are 15 million people who are hungry. About half of the people are facing starvation. Millions of people. And if we just lifted the embargo, they could get fed. If you lifted the embargo and you gave them their money, by the way, you know where the money's going? The number one creditors are Goldman Sachs and Apollo Capital, which is Mr. Black's. Right. One of the hedge fund billionaires. um, Venture fund. So the money's going to Goldman Sachs. It's being held by Mnuchin, our Treasury Secretary, which he says he'll only give to the opposition, this white guy who proclaimed himself a Trump proclaimed president. So they'll give him money if the Venezuelans make him president. It's, it's literally, you're, you know, you're, we're going to starve you unless you're our white guy. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Greg Pallast, investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, his most recent, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. GregPallast.com is the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Pallast, P-A-L-A-S-T. Greg, thank you.
Those folks who support our program, who help essentially sponsor us on YouTube and on uh, Patreon, uh, have access to special content that is generally not available on YouTube or in, you know, any place else. The rant this week that we recorded um, just a few minutes ago, actually, is about how the cell phone companies have been selling your data. And now they swear, double cross your heart and hope to die. Don't worry. We're not going to sell your data anymore. Right. Meanwhile, Gene Shaheen is saying, you know, the drug companies are ripping us off. And at the same time, they're spending, spending billions of dollars on advertising to jack up demand for products that in many cases we don't need and are actually harming us. And it's so good to see that Congress is actually, or at least the Democrats in the House of Representatives and, and well, Gene Shaheen's in the Senate starting to do something about it. Thank you for supporting Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you, uh, Beverly in Austin, Texas. Hey, Beverly, what's on your mind today? I'm voting for Elizabeth Warren. Um, I have four points uh, that influence me. She has shown us that she can get things done. Number two, she knows the issues. Number three, she relates to the public the best. And number four, Trump using Elizabeth as the conduit to put focus on the Native American condition may be a blessing in the long run, just the way that he has electrified us all to seek truth from lies in government. I am 86 years old. Thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you, Beverly. Very well said, and I endorse every single one of your points. Thank you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.